certainly glad to have you here, especially any visitors that we have in our audience. Certainly appreciate your presence. Recognize there are plenty of places you could have been this evening. We're thankful that you've chosen to worship with us here at La Prada. Uh, at our Wednesday evenings, we've been making our way through the Revelation. And so we're on the 16th chapter this evening. So that's what we'll be walking through this evening. Now, before we jump into the 16th chapter, let's consider who this letter is written to. Imagine for a moment that you lived during the first century. Let's say that you either had a Hebrew background or a Gentile background, and you have placed your faith in the Messiah. Let's imagine that you live in Asia Minor. And you worship at one of the seven churches that is called out in the first chapter of the Revelation. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, or Laodicea. You assemble with other saints that worship in one of those places. You recognize that you live in a territory that is under the control of the Romans. As life goes on, you notice that you're starting to hear about and even witness Hostilities towards those who have submitted to Jesus Christ. You may know of some personally who have been killed for their faith. You see this going on and you wonder, where will it end? Where is this going? Will things get better? Will things get worse? You just don't know. You pray for the situation, but surely there is fear in what the future holds. Surely there is fear amongst the people of God because Rome is just so powerful. Rome dominates and controls this part of the world with an iron fist. If the empire makes you its enemy, there is no fighting back. And then one day, one day as the people of God are assembled, a messenger from the apostle John arrives. And he has a letter from the apostle. And it is addressed to the churches in Asia, in Asia Minor. Yes, this is a letter that is written to us. Surely there is excitement as we gather with the saints to hear what message God has inspired John to write to us. This letter that we are studying tonight is what was written to them in the first century. This letter went on to explain the things that they in Asia Minor were dealing with. It explained what was happening at the time and what was coming down the road. John says in verse 19 of chapter 1 that he was told by the Messiah to write the things that he had seen, the things that are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, although this letter is written in symbolic or figurative language, it made sense to the original recipients of the letter. It wasn't written to confuse them, but it was written to help them understand what was going on. It explained the persecution from the Roman Empire that was going on and explained that it was going to get worse. But also explained that God was still on the throne and God was still in control. And God was going to bring an end to this beast that was persecuting them, this beast which was the Roman Empire. This letter gave those first century Christians the strength to hold on and to remain faithful even unto their own death. Yes, this letter was written to a certain people that lived in a certain time to address specific things that they were dealing with. It wasn't written to tell them things that would occur 1,000, 2,000, or even 3,000 years into the future, for that wouldn't have been very helpful to them. Now, this is a practical letter written to them to strengthen them and to give them the knowledge that they needed at that time to remain faithful. 2,000 years separate us from them. But that doesn't mean that we find no value in studying this letter today. Some of the symbolic language may be or is difficult for us to understand. Some of the symbolic language that we read about in today's chapter, about the blood, water, is that literal, is it figurative? Is the scorching heat of the sun representing uh, something, or was it really hot? 
Some of the symbolic language we can debate, the exact meaning of it, and people have debated it for many years. But what we can understand is the big picture of what is going on. And there are principles that we can learn from this letter. We read and then we understand that Satan, the dragon, used a beast to dominate God's people. He used a beast which was Rome back then, and we understand that Satan will use other things in our day to do the same thing to us. There are all kinds of things today that Satan uses that are hostile to the cause of Christ. I'd argue that the media is a beast or a tool that Satan uses to deceive and destroy many. If you sit down and you watch TV for a few hours or watch a movie or browse the internet or read a magazine or the paper, you will see the hand of Satan everywhere. He's the prince of this world, so we shouldn't be surprised. We could go on, but the point is we find value in studying these words that were written to warn and prepare people in the first century, for it does the same for us today. Now, the 16th chapter of the Revelation builds upon chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the preparation for God's judgment, and chapter 16 is what that judgment will look like. In chapter 15, John saw the seven angels with seven plagues, which are the wrath of God. And we are told that these are the last of the judgments. Why the last? Because the end of the beast is being proclaimed. Those who are aligned with the beast have been given sufficient opportunity to repent, but they have not. The time for repentance is over, and now is the time for God's wrath. And so at the end of chapter 15, seven angels were given seven golden vials that were full of the wrath of God. And as the angels left the tabernacle and they left God's presence, the tabernacle was filled with the smoke from the glory of God so that no one could enter in until his wrath was completed. Yes, the time for repentance is over, and now is the time for punishment. So as we consider these golden vials, these golden vials full of God's wrath, let us consider this question. Who should be afraid of these vials? Who should be afraid of God's wrath? The target of God's wrath certainly isn't God's people. God's people are at peace with him. They are pleasing to him. They are not his enemies. Now it is everyone else that should be afraid of the wrath of God. They should be fearful and looking to repent and turn from their ways of evil. And that truth points us to something that Jesus spoke in Matthew 12 and 30. When he said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. We can either be with the Messiah or against him. We can either resist the devil and embrace Jesus or follow Satan and reject Jesus. In Revelation 17 and 14, the text says, Of those who stand with the Lamb, they are called, they are chosen, and they are faithful. You are either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of Satan. There is no middle ground. There is no place of neutrality. So if you're not in the kingdom of God, you already know whose kingdom you're in. But the Lord is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. He allows this world to continue to turn, giving us all time to repent. But one day that time will come to an end. The time for salvation is now. Don't wait because tomorrow might not get here. You might not make it to tomorrow. So getting into chapter 16, let's make our way into the first verse. Chapter 16, verse 1. It says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. So the text says a great voice, a loud voice came out of the temple and spoke to the seven angels, directing them to their assigned work. And what is their assigned work? It is to pour out these vials of God's wrath upon the earth. And so the first angel obeys by pouring out his vial upon the earth. 
And the result, the text says, was a sore or a wound fell upon the men, which the text describes as noisome and grievous. Definitions for noisome include distressing, troublesome, destructive, as in causing harm. So men were wounded in some kind of physical way upon their bodies. Verse 2 reminds us of just who was impacted. These sores fell upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon those who worshipped the image of the beast. Yes, God's people were excluded from this plague. This causes me to consider the plagues that God inflicted on Egypt. If you recall, God inflicted the Egyptians in their land. But the Hebrews who lived in the land of Goshen fared well as they didn't experience God's wrath. This serves to remind us that while all this devastation was going on, God can and he did preserve his people. Picking up at verse 3, it says, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it says, The sea became as the blood of a dead man. I'm no doctor and I'm no mortician, but I'm sure the blood of a living person is different than the blood of a dead person. Perhaps the smell, perhaps the appearance, perhaps the consistency of the blood. This judgment is upon the water, which is so vital to life. The water was so foul that it says that every soul in the sea died. Now, this may seem similar to what we read in chapter 8 when the second angel sounded. And it says, a great burning mountain was cast into the sea, and much life in the sea died. This is very similar, except this time, all of the life in the sea died, rather than just one-third of the life. Picking up at verse 4. It says, and the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. So the waters are affected again. This time as the rivers and the founts of water, fresh water, became blood. His angel spoke out saying, you are righteous, O Lord, who are, who was, and who shall be, because you have judged these things. It says, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. The words of the angel remind us that God is avenging the harm that has been done to his people. For all the evil and the violence that the persecutors brought upon the people of God, they will be repaid. They wanted to shed the blood of the saints. They wanted blood so bad, and now they will get blood. It is their just reward, and they deserve it. John writes that he heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your your judgments. Yes, God is righteous in his judgments. He was long-suffering, giving the persecutor time and opportunity to repent, but that repentance never came. Picking up at verse 8. Text says, and the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. So the fourth angel pours out his vial upon the sun, and the text says, the sun was given power to scorch men with fire. And in response, we learn that the men that were scorched with fire, with great heat, they didn't repent. Instead, they blasphemed or they spoke evil against God who controlled all the plagues. I think they're going against their best interests. They speak evil of God and they recognize these plagues came from God, and yet they still refuse to repent. And they would not give God the glory. They were determined to oppose God to the very end. And then in verse 10, it says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain, and, the blaspheme, and blasphemed the God of heaven, 
because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. <clears throat> so the vial of the fifth angel is poured out upon the seat of the beast. And we know from the previous chapters that this beast is Rome. So the kingdom of Rome says it's full of darkness and those marked by the beast gnawed on their tongues because of the pain that they felt. And they blasphemed or they spoke evil of God because of their pain, because of their sores, and they still did not repent of their works. Picking up at verse 12. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon a great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And he says, And I saw three uncertain spirit, un- unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So here we read that the sixth angel pours out his vial on the Euphrates River, which is on the eastern border of the Roman Empire. The first five plagues which have been mentioned, not much detail was provided. There's not a whole lot of elaboration on the plague. However, the plague we get here, there's a little bit more explanation. In some way, it says that the water of the Euphrates, there on the eastern border of the Roman Empire, says that they were dried up. So a path was opened for adversaries to attack the Roman Empire. It prepared, or the drying up of the river prepared the way for the kings from the east. Now today, rivers aren't a hindrance for our military to attack. With an air force, with weapons that can attack from a distance, a river poses no hindrance to the military. But in the first century, a river such as the Euphrates was an obstacle that had to be overcome in battle. And here we learn that God removes this obstacle and the attacking kings, it says, through these evil spirits were persuaded. They were persuaded by these unclean spirits that came from the dragon, that came from the beast, and came from the false prophet. John says these unclean spirits are the spirits of devils performing signs to gather the attackers to the place called Armageddon. Now, this is the only time this word appears in the Bible, Armageddon. The Hebrew origin of this word means Mount of Megiddo. No further detail for this battle is given here. It doesn't talk about the fighting in this battle. It just mentions the gathering for the battle. So to better understand, or to better understand what's being said here, we look back in the Bible history to gain more insight. In Bible history, we learn that Megiddo is the name of a city that is mentioned about 11 times in the Old Testament. It was about 60 miles north of Jerusalem, as you see there on the map. In history, the area surrounding the city had strategic importance since it commanded the mountain pass through the mountains in the region there. This location made it a good spot to confront enemy invaders because there was a large plain at the mountain pass. Perhaps that explains the number of battles, for there were many battles that were fought in this region. In the days of the judges, Deborah and Barak won a great victory in this area. In 2 Kings 9 and 27, King Ahaziah of Judah was killed there. In 2 Chronicles 35 and 22, King Josiah was killed in this area. So with that background, this place being a well-known place for battle, we read and understand that the spirits of the devils gather the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather for battle here. And in the middle of all this discussion about Armageddon, there's a message directed to the saints in verse 15. The message is this. It says, Behold, I come as a thief. Watch out and keep your garments. Don't be caught naked and then chained. In other words, stay alert, stay awake, keep your clothes with you. The people of God are reminded 
to not get involved in the immorality of the persecutor, to not get caught up in their sin and suffer for it. Don't get caught up in it. Keep your robes clean. Those who are alert, those who are watching, those who are vigilant won't be caught by surprise, but those who aren't careful will be deceived and caught up in the sins of the persecutor. Picking up at verse 17, we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hell out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So we go from the forces of evil that are gathering at Armageddon to the seventh angel pouring out his vial into the air. And there's a loud voice from the temple of heaven saying, it is done. It is God who defeats the forces of evil in this battle. The Bible says there were noises and thundering and lightning and there was a great earthquake. The earthquake was great such that the city was broken apart in three parts. As Rome fell, the nations that were aligned with her fell also. uh, Next chapter is going to talk talk on that, on the impact. Yes, God remembered Rome. He remembered all that Rome had done to his people. And it gives a, a picture here for us to see. A cup of wine is prepared, and that cup of wine is given to Rome. And that wine is the fierceness of God's wrath. In full strength, in full measure, and Rome is forced to drink the whole cup and endure the fierceness of God's wrath. The text says the islands fled away, the mountains were nowhere to be seen, and great hell fell from heaven upon men, and there was nothing to protect them. The hailstones weighed a talent, which was approximately 100 pounds. The destruction is is severe, and it is deserved. It is earned. They deserve it. There's no mercy for them. As the Bible says, they blaspheme God all the way to the very end. So in the end, all the seven vials are empty. God's wrath has been poured out in full strength on Rome, and the persecutor of God's people, Rome, is destroyed, just like all the others that harm God's people, like Egypt and Babylon. So as we come to the end of our study, let us consider the vials of wrath that were poured out and consider the long-suffering of God as he gave many opportunities for repentance. The opportunities to repent were rejected as they continued to blaspheme or speak evil against God. May today's reading remind us that each one of us has the responsibility to repent and turn to God also. If you are not in Christ, you are in your sins. As Romans 14 and 12 says, each one of us shall give to God an account. We will give to God an answer for how we have lived. Each one of us must answer for how we have lived this life. Will you also reject the opportunities to repent? Or will you pursue and will you find salvation that is available in Christ? Just as destruction awaited those who refused to repent, destruction and eternal separation from God awaits all who reject his son. In this evening's reading, we read of seven vials being poured out and that resulted in tragic things occurring that brought about the downfall of the Roman Empire. John described these tragic things that he saw in a vision. And I can only imagine how these things played out in real life. However, however it happened, great destruction was brought out on the Roman Empire, which should have caused them (coughs) to reflect on their sin and repent. But as the text repeatedly pointed out, 
the people continued to blaspheme God and refused to repent. The question I present at this time now is, how should we respond today when we encounter tragic events like that? When disasters like hurricanes, wildfires, tsunamis, or tornadoes, and other tragic things strike our land, should we view them as warnings from our Heavenly Father? Should we be reflecting on our own lives and looking to repent when things like this happen? Obviously, God can use tragic events to get our attention when repentance is required. But is that always the case? Or are these things just normal weather patterns like El Nino or whatever ways man is able to explain things away? I don't know, but what I do see from our reading this evening is verse 15, which said, Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Those who are continually watching, those who are continually alert, those who are keeping their garments always ready and avoiding the stains of sin, those are the ones that it says are blessed or happy and ready for the Messiah. They aren't caught by surprise. This admonition, this encouragement to stay alert is something we should all take away from this reading. May we not be deceived by the wiles of the devil. Let us not get caught up in sin. And may we continually examine our own lives to remove the sin that is there. May we not be conformed to this world. We are a peculiar people. But when we look and we act and we behave in ways that are so similar to the world, something has gone wrong. It isn't the world that is getting more holy. It is because we are getting more sinful and taking on the ways of the world. May we not be aligned with the ways of the sinful, but instead be devoted to the ways of our Heavenly Father, who is holy and has called us to be holy and pure and blameless. We must be continually examining our own lives and rooting sin out as we find it. We must be continually walking in the light, letting the blood of Jesus continually cleanse us from all sin. May we all be vigilant and ready for the return of the Lord. This concludes my thoughts on Revelation 16. As I said before, if you aren't in the kingdom of God, if you aren't on God's side, if you aren't a member of the church, are you ready to be added to the church this evening? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah, if you're willing to repent of your sin and turn to a life that is pleasing to God, if you're willing to confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord, if you're willing to be baptized for remission of sins, you can be added to the church tonight. We encourage you to make this important decision because the time could be too late or we encourage you to make this decision before it's too late. You can indicate your desire by coming forward when we sing the invitation song, but perhaps you have a, just a request of the church, a request for prayers or whatever it may be. You have an opportunity to make that request by, by coming forward as we stand and sing the song that has been selected. I would like to say good morning to all of you here today. I'm glad to be here, and I hope you are also. If you consider yourself to be a visitor, we are especially glad that you're here, that you're with us today. We recognize there are several places that you could have been, but you decided to be here, and we appreciate your presence this morning. We pray that you would give us the opportunity to introduce ourselves to you, uh, so if you would, stick around a little bit after service this morning. <clears throat> we all know the feeling of waiting for our time to start. And waiting. And waiting. <clears throat> even though it's only really a matter of a few minutes, and even though it's nothing more than a phone, you start to feel anxious, tense, wondering how long this is going to take. Waiting on fast food. Chick-fil-A is pretty fast. 
we might be frustrated in traffic. I don't know if you see that, but that's the fast lane there that's backed up. <clears throat> we might be waiting to see the doctor. We might be waiting to complete a project, like a kitchen. <clears throat> you can't really see the, the full kitchen, or should I say sans kitchen. There's really just a, it's a, a blank canvas upon which we'll paint our masterpiece. My sweet bride is being very patient, waiting on a finished kitchen. <clears throat> but I want you to take a look at that six, seven pound sledgehammer right there. I encourage each of you to find a room in your house to, to demo. <clears throat> it's fun. <clears throat> we do a lot of waiting. That's a picture of my sweet bride waiting. We, you know our story. She's, uh, she's not just wearing that hat for fun, by the way. That's a, a cold cap set up. Her, her hands are in ice there. She's waiting uh, on the process of treatment. You might be waiting for the right man or the right woman to enter your life. You might be waiting like our brother Anthony on the Longhorns for them to finally defeat the Razorbacks. <clears throat> and so waiting, of course, is challenging. We all, we all understand that from the oldest to the youngest, men and women, boys and girls, we all understand that waiting is a big challenge. And you may become frustrated with how slowly things are happening. We've all been there. No group knows more about waiting than the Texas Rangers, who've been waiting, what, 63 years for the chance to win the, the World Series of Baseball. There they are. <clears throat> and so waiting sometimes can make the color fade, can make, can make the zeal wane just a little bit. And this mindset often carries over into our spiritual lives without rushing to the next big thing. And so while most of us are in a hurry, it seems God is usually not. So even though God has a plan and a purpose for our journey, He frequently makes us wait. And He made the early disciples wait. I want to invite your attention this morning to the book of Acts in the very first chapter. I want to read the first 12 verses with you this morning. This is our our proof text, this is our focal point. And so Acts, the very first chapter, I would invite your attention there if you have a hard copy of a Bible or if you have a Bible application that you want to open and follow along. We'll be reading these 12 verses here, and hopefully you can see them. They're on the big screen in front of you. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, the former treatise, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach? until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And so through his word, God invites us to reject how society has conditioned us to view waiting, especially when it comes to waiting on God. 
The passage that we just read this morning identifies the experience of waiting as a crucial dimension to loving God, to having faith, to following Jesus. So your time isn't idle when you're waiting. Your time doesn't have to become passive, purposeless, or tedious when God seems to be absent or moving more slowly than we would like Him to move. Instead, this passage encourages us to discover how waiting is actually integral to God's plans of life and salvation. So when we gain that perspective, that seemingly dry times of waiting, they become invigorating opportunities to strengthen our hope in God and to see that He is always faithful. So this is a question that probably every single person in the room has asked at one point or or another in, in your life. It's something that we learn to ask from a very early age. <clears throat> so we, we ask this question, why? Why do we have to wait? Why, why, if we're on a journey, why can't we just expedite the process and get there? Let's, let's make it happen. Why do we have to wait? And that's the question uh, that we're hopefully going to answer this morning. Why don't we want to wait? And so postponing a task or a goal is annoying. I know some of you would be in agreement with that. It's annoying to wait around, right? You have things to do, tasks to complete. Let's, Let's go complete those tasks. It's annoying to wait around. Maybe because we think we're wasting time and our time, our time, our time is too valuable to waste. Perhaps our problem is that we don't have all the details. From our perspective, we have everything figured out. We know where everything goes, we know how to accomplish the goal, and then we want God to move within our time frame. But God doesn't operate that way. And because of this, we can easily become discouraged. If we aren't careful, we'll think he's uncaring or that God is angry at us for some reason. I want to invite your attention to this particular verse in the book of John, chapter 11. This is toward the end of a much lengthier story, and so perhaps you're familiar with the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So Lazarus, unfortunately, passes away. He dies. And so Mary and Martha, they're distraught. All these, these family members and friends are trying to console them. And Jesus is making his way there, but he doesn't arrive as fast as apparently Mary would want him to have been there. And so the Bible says here, then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, She fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And so when Jesus arrives, he's basically accused of taking too long. Why did you postpone your being here, Lord? Why are we having to wait? And so for thousands of years, people are asking the same question. But God always has good reasons for making us wait. It's a part of life. It's a part of death, and it's one of God's tools to develop people. And probably right now you're, you're thinking of all the biblical characters and all the biblical situations where people have had to wait. You might be thinking of Noah, Abraham and his wife having to wait, Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, Jesus, of course, Paul, and many others. How long did Noah have to wait while he built the ark? Do you remember? I'm sure you remember the story of Abraham and his wife and how long they had to wait. Joseph, one of Israel's sons, he had to wait a long time too. And you know, Moses had to wait a full 40 years before God used him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. In the New Testament, Simeon had to wait. Anna the prophetess had to wait. We read about Habakkuk lamenting waiting. The psalmist writes about waiting, and we can go on and on. All these men and women had one commonality. They all had to learn to wait. The apostles needed to learn to wait as well. And so with that as our background, we return to our text, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We've come to the the few days of the life of Christ on the earth. This is, of course, between his resurrection and ascension. So the Bible assures us there was a full 40 days of interaction between Jesus and these other people. And so Luke tells us that on one occasion, the disciples and Jesus share a meal together. The conversation turns to the future, to the time when Jesus would return to heaven, and the disciples would be left with orders to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know, it's easy to imagine that kind of excitement. 
after the apostles witness the just barbaric crucifixion of Jesus, and they think all hope is lost. They all flee. The Bible tells us this. And then Jesus rises the third day. He shows himself openly for 40 days as evidence, as proof of his resurrection. And I would imagine that by that point, the apostles are pumped. They're ready to rock and roll. They're ready to make things happen. Let's usher in the kingdom, Lord. Let's not wait another day. Let's do this. And so I can imagine that the conversation turned to that time. It's easy to imagine that excitement. What do you want us to do, Lord? When do we get started? Where do you want us to begin? And Jesus' answer is simple, really simple, and perhaps shocking, and maybe even disappointing. Don't do anything yet. Go back to Jerusalem and wait there for a promise. And I'm sure that comes as a major surprise. What do you mean? We're gung-ho. We're ready to go forward, and you're you're telling us to wait. Sometimes when God wants to reach the world, brethren, his first step is to tell his people to slow down and wait for him. When the time comes, he'll give them the signal to move out. But until then, go back home, apostles. Wait, people of God. And so what does Jesus tell the apostles there? It's very simplistic. It's very straightforward. He tells them what to do. Very simply, wait. He tells them where to do that in the city of Jerusalem. He tells them what to wait for, the promise of the Father, as we know it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Do you think the apostles needed to learn to wait? Can you think of some times when they were unwilling to wait? Think about the three years or so that they were under the tutelage of Jesus and how impetuous many of them were and how in a rush and in a hurry many of them were. Did the apostles wait with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? I want to invite your attention to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew, the 26th chapter, in verses 36 through 46 this morning. I want to read several verses here. Matthew 26 and verse 36. The Bible says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And if we pause for just a moment, we see immediately in this first verse of Matthew 26 in this passage that Jesus is telling them to wait, sit here, have a seat. That indicates waiting. I want you to wait. Picking up in verse 37, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. In verse 38, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. I want to invite your consideration to one of the phrases that Jesus uses there in verse number 38. So this is not even old English. This is early modern English language. The word tarry, the expression tarry ye here. He's telling them to wait. And we understand that contextually. We might consider what that word means this morning. When we think of waiting, when we think of tarrying. And so this is what we might come across in many dictionaries, to be tardy in acting or doing, to linger in expectation. I love that definition. It's not idleness, it's not purposelessness, it's lingering in expectation, to wait, to abide or to stay in or at one place. And Strong's Concordance gives us a a pretty strong definition as well. And so we see that definition there on the big screen, to spend or take time. 
to spend or to take time is how Strong's defines that. And so when Jesus says to tarry right there with him, they couldn't do that. They couldn't spend or take the time to wait with and on Jesus. Jesus was in his literal hour of need, and they couldn't give a little of their time to wait with him. They couldn't delay their their snoozing to wait and watch with Jesus. Jesus wanted his apostles to wait with a purpose. Jesus wanted his apostles to wait in Jerusalem from our text this morning. So what does all this waiting teach us? And so first of all, I would submit for your consideration this morning that waiting reminds us of God's sovereignty. And so we don't start out willing to wait. Our natural response to waiting is often anger or doubt. How dare you? This is my time we're on here. How dare you demand that I wait? Uh, You know, time is money and, and I'm busy. I've got things to do. Fortunately, God is gracious and merciful, understanding of our tendencies. Simply feeling deep, complex emotions in waiting, especially for significant things like like a big job promotion or uh, a, a marriage, is not sinful in itself. But we can decide where those emotions take us. We can decide to exalt those feelings. We might act on them by taking matters into our, our own hands. Or perhaps we don't act. But maybe we make an idol out of the good for which we're, we're waiting. Every passing day is another log on the fires of bitterness. Even resentment against God who won't give us what we want. Or, by God's grace, we can choose to wait as he intends. And so waiting on the Lord, brethren, is opposite of running ahead of the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is the opposite of bailing out on the Lord. It's staying at our appointed place while he says to stay. It's going at his appointed pace when he says to go. It's not impetuous. It's not despairing either. It's lingering in expectation. And so we have the choice then to take a deep breath, to release our clenched hands, and let God be our sovereign. And so we're invited to continue hoping in his greatness. You know, sometimes when I found myself getting impatient and upset, I I tend to remind myself that God is the one who put me here. Hello, Zol. You are a breath, and that is all you are. And God owes me nothing. Something else we might consider that waiting teaches is that it tests our commitment and resolve. And I know trials do this, of course. We are familiar with with trials and and undergoing those to to test our faith uh, and our resolve in Christ. But I would submit before your consideration this morning that waiting tests our commitment and resolve uh, just as much. Jesus gave specific instructions in three areas. He tells them what to do. He tells them where to do it. He tells them what to wait for. It was very straightforward. But he didn't tell his apostles how long they were going to have to wait. And if they knew anything about Old Testament scriptures, they might have been thinking, oh boy, we're in for a long haul. Remember the Israelites hanging out in their waiting room for 40 years in the desert. And Moses waiting 40 years and and all these big numbers. And so some of you might be in that same place right now. Maybe some of you are waiting and you don't know how much longer you can hold out. You feel like giving up. You feel like walking away. You wonder if prayer is a waste of time because because God hasn't answered your prayers, at least in the way you want Him to answer them. Perhaps you've been waiting for months or years or decades even, and deep inside, maybe you feel like giving up. And so waiting then, I submit to you this morning, exposes our level of commitment and our level of resolve. How committed are we as Christ-like people, as followers of Christ? Something else that I would encourage you to consider, that waiting teaches us to purify our motives. Very soon the disciples would be asked to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Vast responsibilities would fall on these men and women. Great things were expected and great things required. Of all the dangers they faced, perhaps none was greater than the danger of pride. So unknown to the apostles, unknown to them, in just a few short days, 3,000 people would be added to the church, converted at one time. We read of that in Acts chapter 2. But lest they think that everything depended on them, God makes them wait. 
And so as the days go on, the disciples learn that the Holy Spirit cannot be bought or sold. The Holy Spirit cannot be manipulated, cannot be commanded by human will. Waiting would force them into a position of humility, of waiting for the promise of the Father. So Jesus knew that without the power of the Spirit, everything else they did would be in vain. Zechariah chapter 4 in verse number 6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. But with the Spirit, all things were possible. The Holy Spirit would show them the truth, anoint their preaching, and through them draw sinners to the Savior. All of us must come to that same place of utter helplessness before we can experience the fullness of Jesus. Something else that I would submit for your consideration is that waiting teaches us to rearrange our priorities. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4 says that Jesus commanded the disciples to stay in Jerusalem. Do you think that was their priority? They're in the Mount of Olives. Jesus was just crucified. Yes, several people, upwards of 500 people at once, saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. But there were still many people in power, people who had participated in the gruesome death of Jesus, that would probably like to kill his followers as well. And so I imagine that was the last place many of them wanted to be. The men who put him to death a few weeks earlier were still in power. If they killed Jesus, why wouldn't they kill his followers? Certainly all the uproar surrounding his death would have made them even angrier. Jerusalem was no longer a safe city. And so if you were a follower of Jesus, any place on earth was safer than Jerusalem. So getting out of town wasn't such a bad idea. But Jesus commands them to stay. And if they had left, I think it would have shown a lack of courage and and reveal a fear of what man might do to them. It would also show a lack of faith. And so they're having to rearrange their priorities. If they couldn't trust an unseen master to help them, uh, then that would mean leaving the battlefield and admitting defeat. And I think there's another argument that could have been made that maybe still could be made. You know, this is after the death of Jesus. Jesus has commanded all of his, his apostles to spread his word far and wide. And so the argument could be made that the world needed to know about Jesus, and they needed to know right now. So why not usher in the kingdom? Why not establish the church? Why not do that right now in full force? But staying in Jerusalem forces them to confront their fears, forces them to quell their budding enthusiasm, and waiting was difficult. Waiting. It's hard for everybody. It's hard for all of us, especially type A action-oriented people who want to make things happen. There are times in life when God says, okay, you're going too fast. You're, You're forgetting me. I don't want you in the fast lane right now. Get off at the next exit and let's have a chat. And when that happens, usually our response is, okay, well, you you get in the passenger seat while I keep cruising down the highway. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't speak to us more clearly through his word? Maybe because we haven't stopped. Maybe because we haven't waited for an answer from his word. Maybe we've not spent enough time in his word ourselves. Maybe because we have so many other things going on, my priorities here, my work work priorities, my extracurricular priorities, uh, those take precedence right now. But when we rearrange our priorities, when we slow down our schedule, then we can listen to God. Something else that waiting teaches is a transformation of our character. I think waiting has a way of rubbing off the rough edges of our lives. Most of us know the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. It's a true story of of God performing great miracles, but few sermons talk about Moses having to wait in the desert for a full 40 years. And so God used that time of waiting to transform his character. And we know this because when he was a younger man, he was brash, he was impatient, and in his haste, he kills a man and hides the body. But when his sin is made public, he runs for his life and lives in exile in the desert. So when he was given a second chance, he opted to proceed in God's way and in God's time. Waiting transformed the life of Moses. Waiting transformed the lives of the apostles, and I submit to you this morning, waiting can transform our lives. 
consider the Apostle Peter, who just some 40 days prior to this, to this moment that we read about in the book of Acts chapter 1, he denies Jesus three times. You can go back to the book of Mark chapter 14 and read of this in verses 66 to 72. And if you go back to that particular reading, you're going to read there that he wasn't just denying, he was so adamant in his denial that the Bible says he began to curse and to swear that he did not know Jesus. He was willing to go to that extreme to affirm that he didn't know Christ. That was Peter, 40-some-odd days before we're reading about this in Acts chapter 1. Remember also, Peter cut off Malchus's ear. I don't really know what he was aiming at. He had a sword. He cuts off Malchus's right ear, the Bible says. You can read of that in John chapter 18 and verse 10. This is, this is Peter. Remember James and John? It wasn't that long ago. They wanted fire from heaven to come down and consume the Samaritans because they rejected Jesus. You can read of this in Luke chapter 9, verses 52 to 56. Thomas, he had conflicts with faith and doubting. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29, we read about his doubting. Judas Iscariot, we're all familiar with his story. He betrays Jesus in exchange for money, Matthew chapter 26 and verses 14 to 16. And also, what the other apostles really didn't know at that time even, was that Judas Iscariot was dealing with a secret sin. We can read of that in John chapter 12 and verse number 6. John calls him a thief. And lastly, I I would submit to you that all the apostles fled from Jesus. You can read of this in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Yes, John comes back a little later. He's there at the feet of the cross with Mary and a few other women. But all of those men who said, I'm ready to go with you, Jesus, to death, to prison and to death, they forsake him and flee. And so, waiting transforms our character. We we need to do all of that, uh, rearrange our priorities, but it also is a time for us to be introspective, to have an opportunity to change our lives for the better. I would also submit to you this morning that waiting can build intimacy and dependency on God. You know, they were people who learned the value of of their dependence on God. Waiting developed their relationship with God. I know it was only about ten days there, but these apostles and early disciples demonstrate the value and the joy of the process of waiting on their journey. And so I submit for your consideration this morning that God uses those waiting times to give us an opportunity to grow closer to Him. So what did the apostles do in Acts chapter 1? What were they doing while they were waiting? You know they weren't idle. The Bible says that they prayed and they fellowshiped. And I think another temptation that we face when God does not seem to be answering our prayers is we, we stop praying, perhaps. Maybe we stop expecting God to act while giving way to a spirit of cynicism rather than thanking God for who He is and for all, all that He has done for us. So while God may not answer in our timing or in the way we expect, he will accomplish his good purposes in our lives when we wait for him and persevere in prayer. I would invite your attention to one last verse this morning in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. The Bible says here, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I submit before your consideration this morning that from our perspective, we look at waiting as we're having to do the waiting. But I want you to see what God has been doing. God is waiting. That expression that he's long-suffering to usward, that he's forbearing, he's waiting for us to come to him in repentance. And so there's one thing you should never wait to do, and that is God's will. Not willing that any should perish. He's he's encompassing all. It's all-inclusive. And so this morning, we would invite you to come forward and repent, to come forward and be baptized into Christ, to take on Christ, to, to submit to Him and to His will for your life. We can help you with that this morning.
Or if there's someone here who is a brother or sister in Christ and has been struggling with this issue or with any issue, and you need the prayers of the church, we'll be so glad to pray with you and for you if you'll give us that opportunity of either class. If you would, please come forward, have a seat on one of the front rows, and someone will assist you as we stand and as we sing.